0: Chapter 19 of Virgin Soil, Volume 1, by Ivan Turgenev, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Formushka and Fimushka, otherwise former Lavrentievich and Efimia Pavlovna Palovna-Subochev, both belonged to the same family of pure Russian descent, and were considered to be almost the oldest inhabitants of the town of S. They had been married very early, and a very long time ago had installed themselves in the wooden house of their ancestors on the outskirts of the town, had never moved from there, and had never changed their mode of life or their habits in any respect. Time seemed to have stood still for them. No novelty had crossed the boundary of their oasis. Their fortune was not large, but their peasants sent them up poultry and provisions several times a year, just as in the old days before the emancipation. At a fixed date, the village elder appeared with the rents and a brace of woodcocks, supposed to be shot on the manorial forest domains, though the latter had in reality long ceased to exist. They used to regale him with tea at the drawing-room door, present him with a sheepskin cap and a pair of green wash-leather mittens, and bid him godspeed. The Subochev's house was filled with house serfs, as in the old serf days. The old man-servant Kalyopich, clothed in a jerkin of extraordinarily stout cloth with a stand-up collar and tiny steel buttons, announced in a sing-song chant that dinner is on the table and dozed standing behind his mistress's chair, all quite in the old style. The sideboard was in his charge. He had the care of the various spices, cardamoms and lemons, and to the question, hadn't he heard that all serfs had received their freedom, he always responded, To be sure, folks would forever be talking some such idle nonsense that like enough there was freedom among the Turks, but he, thank God, had escaped all that. A girl, Pufka, a dwarf, was kept for entertainment, and an old nurse, Vasilievna, used to come in during dinner with a large dark kerchief on her head and talk in a thick voice of all the news, of Napoleon, of the year 1812, of Antichrist and white niggers. Or else, her chin propped in her hand, in an attitude of woe, she would tell what she had dreamed and what it portended, and what fortune she had got from the cards. The Subotchev's house itself was quite different from all the other houses in the town. It was entirely built of oak and had windows exactly square. The double windows for winter were never taken out all the year round. And there were in it all kinds of little ante-rooms and passages, lumber rooms and store closets, and raised landings with balustrades and alcoves raised on rounded posts, and all sorts of little back premises and cellars. In front was a little palisade, and behind a garden, and in the garden outbuildings of every sort, granaries, cellars, ice-houses, a perfect nest of them. And it was not that there were many goods stored in all these outhouses, some indeed were tumbling down. But it had all been so arranged in old days, and so it had remained. The Subochefs had only two horses, ancient, grey and shaggy. One was covered with white patches from age. They called it the Immovable. They were, at most once a month, harnessed to an extraordinary equipage known to the whole town and presenting a resemblance to a terrestrial globe with one quarter cut out in front lined within with foreign yellow material closely dotted with big spots like warts the last yard of that stuff had been woven in Utrecht or lyon in the time of the empress elizabeth the subochefs coachman too was an exceedingly aged man redolent of train oil and pitch his beard began just under his eyes while his eyebrows fell in little cascades to meet his beard. He was so deliberate in all his movements that it took him five minutes to take a pinch of snuff, two minutes to stick his whip in his belt, and more than two hours to harness the immovable alone. His name was Perfishka. If, when the Sobachevs were driving, their carriage had to go ever so little uphill, they were invariably alarmed, they were as frightened, however, going downhill, hung on to the straps of the carriage, and both repeated aloud, God grant the horses, the horses, the strength of Samuel, and make us, us light as a feather, light as a feather. The Subochefs were regarded by everyone in the town as eccentric, almost as mad, and indeed they were conscious themselves that they were not in touch with the life of the day, but they did not trouble themselves very much about that, the manner of life to which they had been born and bred and married they adhered to. Only one peculiarity of that manner of life had not clung to them, from their birth up they had never punished anyone, never had anyone flogged. If any servant of theirs proved to be an irreclaimable thief or drunkard, first they were patient and bore with him a long while, just as they would have put up with bad weather, and at last tried to get rid of him, to pass him on to other masters. Let others, they would say, take their turn of them for a little. But such a disaster rarely befell them, so rarely that it made an epoch in their lives, and they would say, for instance, that was very long ago. It happened when we had that rascal Aldoshka, or when we had the grandfather's fur cap with the fox's tail stolen. The Subochefs still had such caps. Another distinguishing trait of the old world was, however, not noticeable in them. Neither Fimushka nor Formushka was very religious. Formushka went so far as to profess some of Voltaire's views, while Fimushka had a mortal dread of ecclesiastical personages. They had, according to her experience, the evil eye, The priest comes in to call on me, she used to say, and then I look round and the creams turned sour. They rarely went to church and fasted in the Catholic fashion, that's to say, ate eggs, butter and milk. This was known in the town and, of course, did not improve their reputation. But their goodness carried everything before it, and though the queer Subochefs were laughed at and regarded as lunatics and innocents, they were all the same, in fact, respected. Yes, they were respected, but no one visited them. This, however, was no great affliction to them. They were never bored when they were together, and therefore they were never apart, and desired no other company. Neither Formushka nor Fimushka had once been ill, and if either of them ever contracted some slight ailment, then they both drank lime-flower water, rubbed warm oil on their stomachs, or dropped hot tallow on the soles of their feet, and it was very soon over. They always spent the day in the same way. They got up late, drank chocolate in the morning in tiny cups of the shape of a cone, tea they used to declare came into fashion after our time they sat down opposite to one another and either talked and they always found something to talk about or read something out of agreeable recreations the mirror of the world or ionides or looked at a little old album bound in red morocco with gold edges which once belonged as an inscription recorded to one madame barbe de cabeline how and when this album had come into their hands they did not know themselves In it were several French and many Russian poems and prose-extracts, after the fashion, for instance, of the following short meditations on Cicero. In what disposition Cicero entered upon the office of quaestor, he explains as follows, invoking the gods to testify to the purity of his sentiments in every position with which he had hitherto been honoured. He deemed himself by the most sacred bonds bound to the worthy fulfilment thereof, and to that intent he, Cicero, not only suffered himself not the indulgence of the pleasures forbidden by law, but refrained even from those lighter distractions which are held to be indispensable by all. Below stood the inscription, composed in Siberia in hunger and cold. A good specimen, too, was a poem entitled, Tiersis, where these lines were to be met. A settled peace is over all, the dews a sparkle in the sun, Nature it soothes with freshness cool, giving new life to the day begun. Tirsis alone, with soul dismayed, sorrows, pines, so lone and so sad. His darling Aneta is far away, and what can then make Tirsis glad? And the impromptu composition of a captain who had come on a visit in 1790, dated May 6th. Never shall I forget thee, lovely Hamlet. Forever shall I recall how sweetly the time passed, What kindness I received in thy noble owner's hall. Five memorable happy days in a circle worthy of all praise, with old and young ladies, not a few, and other interesting people too. On the last page of the album, instead of verses, there were recipes for remedies against stomach ache, spasms and worms. The subotchefs dined at twelve o'clock punctually, and always upon old-fashioned dishes, curd fritters, sour cucumber soups, salt cabbage, pickles, hasty pudding, jelly puddings, syrups, jugged poultry with saffron and custards, made with honey. After dinner they took a nap for just one hour and no longer, waked up, again sat opposite one another, and drank cranberry syrup and sometimes an effervescent drink called Forty Winks, which, however, almost all popped out of the bottle, and afforded the old people great amusement and Kaliopic great annoyance. He had to wipe up all over the place, and he kept up a long grumble at the butler and the cook, whom he regarded as responsible for the invention of this beverage. What sort of good is there in it? It only spoils the furniture. Then the Subochefs again read something, or laughed at the pranks of the dwarf Pufka, or sang duets of old-fashioned songs. Their voices were exactly alike, high, feeble, rather quavering, and hoarse, especially just after their nap, but not without charm. Or they played cards, always the same old games, cribbage, piquet, or even Boston with double dummy. Then the samovar made its appearance. They drank tea in the evening. This concession they did make to the spirit of the age though they always thought it a weakness and that the people were growing noticeably feebler through this chinese herb as a rule however they refrained from criticizing modern times or exalting the old days they had never lived in any other way from their birth up but that other people might live differently better even they readily admitted so long as they were not required to change their ways at seven o'clock Kalyopich served the supper with the inevitable cold sour hash And at nine o'clock the high-striped feather-beds had already taken into their soft embraces the plump little persons of Formushka and Fimushka, and untroubled sleep was not slow in descending upon their eyelids. And everything was hushed in the old house. The lamp glowed amid the fragrance of musk. The cricket chirped, and the kind-hearted, absurd, innocent old couple slept sound. To these eccentrics or as parklin expressed it pole parrots who were taking care of his sister he now conducted his friends his sister was a clever girl and not bad-looking her eyes were magnificent but her unfortunate deformity had crushed her deprived her of all self-confidence and joyousness made her distrustful and even ill-tempered and her name was very unfortunate Snandulia. parklin had tried to make her change it to sophia but she clung obstinately to her queer name saying that that was just what a hunchback ought to be called snandulia she was a good musician and played the piano well thanks to my long fingers she observed with some bitterness hunchbacks always have fingers like that the visitors came upon pomushka and fimushka at the very minute when they had waked up from their after-dinner nap and were drinking cranberry water we are stepping into the 18th century cried paklin directly they crossed the threshold of the subotchev's house and they were, in fact, confronted by the 18th century in the very hall, in the shape of low, bluish screens covered with black, cut-out silhouettes of powdered cavaliers and ladies. Silhouettes, introduced by Lavater, were much in vogue in Russia in the 80s of last century. The sudden appearance of so large a number of visitors, no less than four, produced quite a sensation in the secluded house. They heard a stampede of feet, both shod and naked, more than one woman's face was thrust out for an instant and then vanished again. Someone was shut out, someone groaned, someone giggled, someone whispered convulsively, Get along with you, do! At last Kaliopich made his appearance in his shabby jerkin, and opening the door into the salon, he cried in a loud voice, Your Honor, Sila Samsonitch with some other gentlemen. The old people were far less fluttered than their servants. The eruption of four full-sized men in their drawing-room, comfortably large as it was, did indeed bewilder them a little, but Parklin promptly reassured them by presenting, with various odd phrases, Neshtanov, Solomin, and Markelov to them in turn as good quiet fellows and not crown people. For Mushka and Fimushka had a special dislike for crown, that is, official, people. Snandulya, who appeared at her brother's summons, was far more agitated and ceremonious than the old Subochev's. They asked their visitors both together and in exactly the same phrases to sit down and begged to know what they would take tea chocolate or an effervescent beverage with jam when they heard that their guests wanted nothing since they had not long before lunched at the merchant golushkins and would shortly dine there then they did not press them and folding their little hands across their little persons in precisely the same manner they entered upon conversation at first the conversation flagged rather but soon it grew livelier Parklin diverted the old people hugely with Gogol's well-known story of the mayor who succeeded in getting into a church when it was full, and of the pie that was equally successful in getting into the mayor. They laughed till the tears ran down their cheeks. They laughed, too, in exactly the same way, with sudden shrieks, ending in a cough, with their whole faces flushed and heated. Parklin had noticed that, as a rule, quotations from Gogol have a very powerful and, as it were, convulsive effect upon people like the Sobochevs. But, as he was not so much anxious to amuse them as to show them off to his friends, he changed his tactics, and managed so that the old people were soon quite at ease and animated. Formushka brought out and showed the visitors his favourite carved wood snuff-box, on which it had once been possible to distinguish thirty-six figures in various attitudes. They had long ago been effaced, but Formushka saw them, saw them still, and could distinguish them and point them out. "'See,' he said, "'there's one looking out of the window.' Do you see, he's put his head out, and the spot to which he pointed with his chubby finger with its raised nail was just as smooth as all the rest of the snuff-box lid. Then he drew the attention of his guests to a picture hanging above his head, painted in oils. It represented a hunter in profile galloping full speed on a pale bay-coloured steed, also in profile, over a plain of snow. The hunter wore a tall white sheepskin cap with a blue streamer, a tunic of camel's hair, with a velvet border and a belt of wrought gold. A glove embroidered in silk was tucked into the belt, and a dagger mounted in silver and black hung from it. In one hand the hunter, who was very youthful and plump in appearance, held a huge horn, decked with red tassels, and in the other the reins and whip. All the four legs of the horse were suspended in the air, and on each of them the artist had conscientiously portrayed a horseshoe, and even put in the nails. And observe, said Formushka, pointing with the same chubby finger to four semicircular marks in the white ground behind the horse's legs. The prints in the snow. Even these he has put in. Why, it was that there were only four of these prints. Not one was to be seen further back. On that point Formushka was silent. And you know that it is I, he added after a brief pause, with a modest smile. What, exclaimed Nishtanov, did you hunt? I did, but not for long. Once the horse threw me at full gallop, and I injured my kurpi, so Fimushka was frightened, and so she wouldn't let me. I have given it up ever since. What did you injure? inquired Neshtanov. The kurpi, repeated Fomushka, dropping his voice. His guests looked at one another. No one knew what sort of a thing a kurpi might be. At least Markelov knew that the shaggy tuft on a Cossack or Circassian cap is called a kurpi, but surely Fomushka could not have injured that but to ask him exactly what he understood by the word was more than anyone could make up his mind to do. Well now, since you've shown off, Fimushka observed suddenly, I will show off too. Out of a diminutive bonheur du jour, as they used to call the old-fashioned bureau on tiny crooked legs, with a convex lid which folded up into the back of the bureau, she took a watercolour miniature in an oval bronze frame, representing a perfectly naked child of four years old, with a quiver on her shoulder and a blue ribbon round her breast, trying the points of the arrows at the end of her little finger. The child was very curly and smiling and had a slight squint. Vimushka showed the miniature to her visitors. That was I, she observed. You? Yes, I. In my childhood. There was an artist, a Frenchman, who used to come and see my father, a splendid artist, and so he painted a picture of me for my father's birthday. And what a nice Frenchman he was. He came to see us afterwards, too. He would come in, scraping his foot as he bowed, and then giving it a little shake in the air, and would kiss your hand, and when he went away he would kiss his own fingers and bow to right and to left, and before and behind. He was a delightful Frenchman. They praised his work. Parklin even professed to discern a certain likeness. Then Formushka began talking of the French of today, and expressed the opinion that they must all be very wicked, Why so, former Lavrentievich? Why, only see what names they have now. What, for instance? Why, such as Nojean saint Lorraine Nojean saint Lorraine, a regular bandit's name. Formushka inquired incidentally, who was the sovereign now in Paris? They told him Napoleon, and that seemed to surprise and pain him. Why so? Why, he must be such an old man, he began, and stopped, looking round him in confusion. Pomushka knew very little French and read Voltaire in a translation, in a secret box under the head of his bed he kept a manuscript translation of Candide, but he occasionally dropped expressions like, That, my dear sir, is fausse parquet, in the sense of suspicious, untrue, at which many people laughed, till a learned Frenchman explained that it was an old parliamentary expression used in his country until the year 1789. Seeing that the conversation had turned on France and the French, Fimushka screwed up her courage to inquire about one thing which was very much on her mind. She first thought of applying to Markelov, but he looked very ill-tempered. She might have asked Solomine, but no, she thought, he's a plain sort of person, he's sure not to know French. So she addressed herself to Neshtanov. "'There's something, my dear sir, I should like to learn from you,' she began. "'Excuse me.' "'My cousin, Sila Samsonich,' you must know, makes fun of an old woman like me and my old-fashioned ignorance. How so? Why, if anyone wants to put the question what is it in the French dialect, ought he to say qu'est-ce, 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 la? Yes. And can he also say qu'est-ce, qu'est-ce, la? Yes, he can. And simply qu'est-ce, la? Yes, he could say that too. And all that would be the same. Yes. Fimushka pondered deeply and threw up her hands. Well, Silushka, she said at last, I was wrong and you were right. But these Frenchmen, poor things. Parklin began begging the old people to sing them some little ballad. They both laughed and wondered how such an idea could occur to him. They soon consented, however, but only on the condition that Snandulia sat down to the harpsichord and accompanied them. She would know what. In one corner of the drawing-room there turned out to be a diminutive piano, which not one of them had noticed at the beginning. Snandulya sat down to this harpsichord, struck a few chords, such toothless, acid-wizened, crazy notes Nishtanov had never heard before in his life. But the old people began singing promptly. Is it to feel the smart, began Fimushka, "That's hid in love, the gods gave us a heart attuned to love? Was there a lovesick heart, responded Fimushka, in the world ever, Quite free from woe and smart, never, never, put in Formushka, Never, never, repeated Fimushka. Pain is of love apart, ever, ever, they both sang together. Ever, ever, Formushka warbled alone. Bravo, cried Paklin, that's the first verse, now the second. Certainly, answered Formushka. only Snandulya Samsonovna, how about the shake? There ought to be a shake after my verse. To be sure, replied Snandulya, you shall have your shake. Fomushka began again. Has ever lover loved and known not grief and pain? What lover has not sighed and wept and sighed again? And then Fimushka, the heart is rocked in grief as a ship floats on the main. Why was it given then? For pain, for pain, for pain, cried Fomushka, and he waited to give Snandulya time for the shake. Snandulya performed the shake. For pain, for pain, for pain, repeated Fimushka. And then both together. Take, gods, my heart away. Again, 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 again. And the song wound up with another shake. Bravo, bravo, they all shouted, with the exception of Markeloff. And they even clapped their hands. And do they feel, thought Nishtanov directly, the applause ceased. They are performing like some sort of buffoons? Perhaps they don't, and perhaps they do feel it and think, where's the harm? No one's the worse for it. We amuse others, in fact. And if you look at it properly, they're right, a thousand times right. Under the influence of these reflections, he began suddenly paying them compliments, in acknowledgement of which they merely made a sort of slight curtsey without leaving their chairs. But at that instant, out of the adjoining room, probably a bedroom or maid's room, where a great whispering and bustle had been audible a long while, appeared the dwarf, Puvka, escorted by the old nurse, Vasilyevna. Puvka proceeded to squeal and play antics, while the nurse one minute quieted her and the next egged her on. Markelov, who had long shown signs of impatience, as for Solomon, he simply wore a broader smile than usual, turned sharply upon Formushka. I shouldn't have thought you, he began in his abrupt fashion, with your enlightened intellect. You're a follower of Voltaire, aren't you? could be amused by what ought to be a subject for compassion. I mean deformity. Then he remembered Parklin's sister and could have bitten his tongue off, while Fomushka turned red, murmuring, Why, why I didn't... She herself... And then Pufka fairly flew at Markelov. What put that idea into your head, she squeaked in her lisping voice, to insult our masters. They protect a poor wretch like me, take me in, give me meat and a drink, and you must grudge at me you envy another's luck i suppose where do you spring from you black-faced worthless wretch with moustaches like a beetles here Pufka showed with her thick short finger what his moustaches were like vasilyevna's toothless gums were shaking with laughter and her mirth was echoed in the next room of course i can't presume to judge you markelov addressed formushka to protect the poor and the crippled is a good action but allow me to observe, to live in luxury, wallowing in ease and plenty, even without injuring others, but not to lift a finger to aid your fellow-creatures, doesn't imply much virtue. I, for one, to tell the truth, attach no value to that sort of goodness. Here Pufka gave a deafening howl. She had not understood a word of all Markelov said, but the black-browed fellow was scolding. How dared he? Vasilievna, too, muttered something indistinct while Fomushka folded his little hands across his breast and turning towards his wife. Fimushka, my darling, he said, all but sobbing. Do you hear what the gentleman says? You and I are sinners, miscreants, Pharisees. We are wallowing in luxury. Oh, oh, we ought to be turned into the streets and have a broom put in our hands to work for our living. Oh, ho, ho. Hearing these mournful words, Pufka howled louder than ever. Fimushka's eyes puckered up, the corners of her mouth dropped, "'She was just drawing in a deep breath "'so as to give full vent to her emotions. "'There's no knowing how it would have ended "'if Parklin had not intervened. "'What's the meaning of this? "'Upon my word,' he began with a wave of the hand "'and a loud laugh. "'I wonder you're not ashamed of yourselves. "'Mr. Markelov meant to make a little joke, "'but as he has such a very solemn face, "'it sounded rather alarming, "'and you were taken in by it. "'That's enough. "'Efemia Pavlovna, there's a dear,' We've got to go in a minute so do you know what you must tell all our fortunes before parting you're a great hand at that sister get the cards vimushka glanced at her husband and he was sitting now completely reassured she too was reassured the cards she said but i've quite forgotten my dear sir it's long since i had them in my hand but of her own accord she took out of snandulya's hands a pack of aged queer ombre cards Whose fortune shall I tell? Oh, everyone's, said Parklin. While to himself, he said, what a mobile old thing. You can turn her any way you like. She's a perfect darling. Everyone's, Granny, everyone's, he went on aloud. Tell us our fate, our character, our future. Tell us everything. Vimushka began shuffling the cards, but suddenly she threw down the whole pack. I don't need to use the cards, she cried. I know the character of each of you without that. And as the character is, so is the fate. He now, she pointed to Solomon, is a cool man, constant. He now, she shook her finger at Markelov, is a hot, dangerous man. Pufka put out her tongue at him. As for you, she looked at Paklin, there's no need to tell you. You know yourself. A weathercock. As for this gentleman, she indicated Neshdanov and hesitated. What is it, he said. Tell me, please. What sort of man am I? "'What sort of man are you?' said Fimushka slowly. "'You're to be pitied, that's all.' Nishtanov shuddered. "'To be pitied? Why so?' "'Oh, I pity you, that's all.' "'But why?' "'Oh, for reasons. My eye tells me so. "'Do you think I'm a fool? "'Oh, I'm cleverer than you, for all your red hair. "'I pity you. That's your fortune.' All were silent they looked at one another and were still silent well goodbye dear friends parklin cried we've stayed too long and tired you i'm afraid it's time these gentlemen were off and i'll see them on their way goodbye thanks for your kind reception goodbye goodbye come again don't stand on ceremony for and Fumushka cried with one voice then fomushka struck up suddenly like a refrain many many years of life Many, many years, Kalyopich chimed in quite unexpectedly in the bass as he opened the door to the young men. And all four of them suddenly emerged into the street before the podgy little house, while at the window they heard Pufka's squeaky voice. Fools! she shouted. Fools! Parklin laughed aloud, but no one responded. Markelov scanned each in turn as though he expected to hear some word of indignation. Solomin alone smiled his ordinary smile. End of chapter 19.